that feels like in some way they're providing a service, it would be a different invite to say, hey folks, I hear the police are going to go in and, and raid the park this tomorrow morning. We ride at dawn. Uh, who's <laughs> who's, I, I, who's I, with I me? I want to be there. I want to be a part of that group. We ride at dawn. Hey there, if you've joined the podcast today, my name is Chris Jarvis. I work with companies on employee giving and volunteering programs. And my name's Jake McIsaac. I spend a lot of time thinking about public safety and restorative justice. So we are having conversations here that we've been having for 20 years. Yeah, the only difference now is we press record and share it with you. Thanks for joining us. On this week's episode, I asked Chris if he's heard what's been going on with the tent cities and the encampments of unhoused folks here in his hometown of Halifax. Which is fascinating because I hadn't heard about it, and yet there are some interesting parallels with what the private sector will and now may not want to do around advocacy and employee activism around some of these issues, issues that affect all of us where we live, work, and play. Let's get into it. All right. So Chris, last year, August 18th, 2021, uh, police moved into a encampment of unhoused folks and started to dismantle tents and move them off of a, a public park, okay, a green space area, and um, protests erupted. It w- it went fully kinetic. Um, there were uh, like a ten year old got pepper sprayed. Um, oh, geez. People were fighting with police. I mean, this was it got really really ugly, and. Uh, so police backed away a bit and the municipality took another year another encampment sprang up and same um, same spot They're different like, spot they get, okay yeah they 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 were they got rid of the they were effective spot. in taking the, the the initial space okay and where was the space too by the it way it was, was right on like spring a... garden road here in halifax it was at the old public library play, uh, oh, yeah, site yeah. is where that used to be so they've closed that library that Real estate is owned by the city. It's not mm-hmm. private property. It is not being used by anybody. Right. And except for people who didn't have unhoused a home, folks. Up. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they bulldoze so, them. So I just want to play a, a, a news clip um, because this was one year later, and it's kind of an interesting trend that's happening across the country. This comes from the uh, CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. It's a is national it? show. Okay. And it's this year? It's this year. It's about uh, two weeks ago. Steve Wadden and his dog, Nova, have been living in a tent in this Charlottetown parking lot. I just, this seems right for me right now. Some of it can be okay, but uh, it's it's very rough. It's hard out there nowadays. I guess the population has risen and um, there's not enough uh, housing. Across Canada, city officials are trying to figure out how to deal with homeless encampments. Halifax recently ordered people living in a West End park to leave and said police could be called in. The city states that they do have designated parks, but those designated parks are unsafe and the people weren't consulted on the sites, so they don't feel safe there, so they don't want to go there. Last summer, Toronto police clashed with protesters when officers moved to clear a large encampment in a popular West End park. Montreal has cleared some camps too and is looking to hire a liaison officer to help dismantle others that pop up. It says encampments are not a safe or sustainable solution to homelessness. 
Yeah, there's more. In, in but advocates the, say simply shutting them down doesn't help. We agree with the city that uh, the campments are not a long-term solution to the housing crisis, or we encourage them actually to lead an effort and to provide affordable housing solutions to the people in the camps. Leilani Farha visited people in homeless encampments as the former UN Special Rapporteur on the right to adequate housing. They are human rights holders and they're making a claim. They're saying, hey, I have the right to adequate housing and there is no other place for me to find that right, to, to live that right. And so I'm going to roll out my sleeping bag or pitch my tent here because I have no other options. She says the main goal should be affordable and secure housing for everyone, with all levels of government working towards that, along with those living in tents now. Alison Northcott, CBC News, Montreal. Right across the country, national... I, I, I was trying to think back, um, particularly... Uh, when we were doing uh, some of the work around the Sunday suppers and with our outreach in those early days, and we were engaged with unhoused folks, I don't remember it being that organized, like whole tent cities or, or, or places around the city. I remember the jungle. They had a couple little places where this would happen, but yeah, I right didn't now, even know. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in Halifax, and I didn't know what they called the like the jungle. There's a whole story behind that, but it's this green foresty area between one road and a hill mm -hmm. down to the military base. Yeah, and I, I, you're right. I, I mean, I grew up. I didn't see it. Yeah. Well, no, well I, now, now it's interesting that. That, you know, it's now come out of that foresty kind of place. It's right on the main drag. You know, you drive down Spring Garden Road and there's a number of tents. Well, it used to be until last year. And then folks moved over to Mar Park and it was then renamed by the occupants People's Park. Right. And for the okay. for a better part of a year, folks lived there, um, survived there. That news story that, that, that we played at the beginning was... Um, surprising to me that it seems that right across the country, the same tactic is being used. It's, it's municipal level, level governments using police as a tool to displace and remove things that are, uh, I don't know if it's an eyesore, but they all always seem to be saying it's unsafe. Well, yeah. Are you seeing these kind of things in the U.S.? Yeah, you know, uh, housing in the U.S. has been a dominant issue for decades. Um, you know, I you think of the um, the Great Depression and everybody who moved into Central Park because there's no place to live. But these areas historically were kind of for this purpose. I mean, um, the commons in Halifax was a common where people could bring their animals. And I know people today yeah, exactly. think they're animals. This was the city. Well, it was only a little mm -hmm. bit of city. And even where there was a city, people kept animals in the back of their houses and stuff. Like here in Baltimore, where I live, there's these little sally ports, alleyways between the buildings which were built british style you know townhome like row houses right and you would go to the back and that's where you'd keep your horse because that was your transportation or your cow because that was your milk or your chickens because you sold eggs or but you needed a place to take them to graze because there's mm -hmm. no grass here and so there were these common areas around and as we've developed we don't have you know animals that need grass <laughs> so yeah, no i mean except so they've come parks and green spaces and fun spaces for kids and that kind of thing. But they they definitely have trended with the group paying the taxes in terms of their point. 
Does that? Well, I've, that I've been sense? watching. I've been watching some of these conversations. So the the residents who live nearby, uh, yeah. the homeowners who live near near, uh, at least yeah, Park or people. I've park. looked up this park. It's. It, I mean, to call it a park is generous, right? Like it's very a few hundred square feet between three roads, and there, you couldn't put a house there. So let's make it green and put a tree. Like that's there's not much there. Forever. I mean, I would I drive by that spot regularly up until last year i just thought it was a green space and there was a bench and uh, mostly a well-worn path to the local elementary school like right through the, yeah. the middle it's a shortcut yeah so i think that's absolutely right yeah to call it except when other people started to be there then people wanted their park back and it was interesting in terms of residents uh, some of the conversations uh, there was this, uh, would you want this in your neighborhood? Yeah. What would you think if they came out to your neighborhood? And I had, I had this conversation with a colleague and said, Jake, if people came to your neighborhood, I don't think you'd be okay with it. Yeah. I was like, well, I think, I think I would. But the other reason is they're not coming to my neighborhood. Cause that's not where any of the service providers are. Yeah. 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 Like <laughs> the service providers are downtown. Yep. Like the, the, everything that they need, their whole network is downtown. It would, it would be silly for folks to come to my the park by my house. You know this is not about a park, right? It's not about a lack of green space. It's the green yeah, space near you, the place they need to go. Because you could take your little encampment and go in the woods and live off the woods. But how many of us know to, how to do that? I mean, I watch Alone. Have I you ever love, seen that show? I love that alone? show. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's tough for people who know what they're doing to mm -hmm. to last. So yeah, that's a that's a sort of a silly notion. But it, it was interesting to to see how uh, a community sprang up though. And so uh, right. some of the pieces that I saw, even just driving by it on a regular basis, sort of a, a common fire pit in the center of the park. Right. Uh, there's tended to be the organization of I like love fires when I'm camping. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. But you have, you have uh, one tent that, or like a canopy that looked like it was a food prep area. Oh. So it started to organize and it wasn't right. just a collection of tents. Right. It really started to spring up a, a community. Interesting to see. Do you remember the area? And I know we're going to move on from this and talk about the implications in our own. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that these people didn't, weren't driven in a truck and dropped off, like uh, uh, Governor Abbott is dropping off immigrants uh, all across the country in buses. Just open the door and you're in DC. Good luck. Right. Um, which is definitely exacerbating the issue, but it's not like these folks showed up in Halifax. They just got out of a bus. Where were they living before? So I want to explore that yeah. uh, uh, a little bit. Do you remember reading a book? I can't remember the name of it, okay. um, but it was a book about uh, this woman's life in this small area between Hong Kong when it was under British rule before 1991 or whatever that was when it ended mm -hmm. and China. And there was this, it's uh, just maybe a couple square acres. It was the most densely populated place on the planet because people who were escaping China or didn't, couldn't get in there or, or didn't belong in Hong Kong, whatever, this was free human space and it just mm. organized itself and there were systems and processes and there were way densely packed and all that kind of thing, crime ridden because there was no formal police. Um, there's community self-policing, all that kind of thing. But it is interesting to see human beings when they're in this space, they, they do self-organize. 
Yeah, I think what we're doing is we use a different test when we think about encampments that we don't always apply to our own neighborhood. We say that the presence of any kind of crime in there means that we can't allow this encampment yeah, to exist. It's terrible. Yeah. Right? It's unsafe yeah. and we need to, it's in a paternalistic way, yeah. move in, take yeah. care of it and make them safe. Well, I have crime in my neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have crime in your neighborhood. It's different. Uh, but the absence of crime isn't the test of safety. The strategies that we put in place, that we take care of each other. So, so a deeply human response to an unsafe condition is to adapt to it, mm-hmm. not to just immediately run. So we mm-hmm. develop strategies. Mm-hmm. In that community, I'm sure they were developing, because this is what humans do, their own strategies to whatever yes, was yeah, happening. Th- that was true. That is true. Yeah, in this, in the Hong Kong example, and probably in the the park. But what's interesting to me is uh, the other part uh, about that is you asked, well, where did they come from? Yeah, they like came from they came from Spring Garden Road. Like right. when you displace people, they right. need to go somewhere. They're so all you, over the place. They're you just haven't not solved anything exactly by closing one park. Where did you think they were going to go? Yep, yep. that's not a solution. <laughs> no, that just gives you your park back. And you don't have to see them in concentration, which is the upsetting thing, right? Exactly. May, I don't want to have if they to would see just go this. back to the jungle, like you described. Just that get little a job. space. Stop being poor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just go back to where we can't see it, because I actually want I want to have that park back to walk my dog, and <laughs> to take my kid. And uh, I didn't even like that park before, but I'm going to use it now. <laughs> I, exactly, exactly. You wouldn't believe how many people wish they could come to Baltimore here in the Baltimore area now that there are squeegee kids um, <laughs> who are all black. And so in the suburbs, somebody was just from the suburbs. I met him the other day. He's the real deal. He's a good guy. And he was just saying, I'm tired of talking to my neighbors about how Baltimore is so unsafe and they're attacked at the first intersection in the city and they're avoiding going in the city. They'll never come back to Baltimore. And honestly, hmm, how often yeah. do they come down here anyways? Right, like, well, uh, yeah. No, I, I, I don't feel unsafe by squeegee, but I just hate streaks. Like, don't, oh. do don't, <laughs> I don't. When I, when I, when I drive off, I'm like, don't. I do know, it. Don't dude. Do I just it. got a car wash. Don't, don't. Oh, here's your ten dollars. Thank yeah, you. Just thanks. I would pay you not to do that, dude. I, that's what we started doing. I roll down the window. I'm like, five bucks. I'm good. Next. Yeah. <laughs> Pass it on. I'm paying it. F- I am paying it forward, but not in a good way. <laughs> Don't don't do don't, don't streak me. up. I'm gonna have to stop ahead a couple blocks and then fix this. Yeah. So the the issue with homelessness is interesting. Got a bunch of different things pop into my head. One is that in the United States, when I've talked about this, I think last year on the podcast, there's a housing crisis, and a couple of companies that have purport themselves to be really out front in helping solve social issues, BlackRock and Wells Fargo have been buying up uh, many times sight unseen properties. So there's a lot less private stock to buy from. And with the interest rates going up a little bit, it becomes quite difficult to find a house that you like and to move into it. So home ownership is always a barrier anyways. But you you compound that with the, have you checked into rent lately? Rent down here is running about $250, $300 a square foot in Baltimore. Wow. In Baltimore. There's There's an apartment around the corner and this is not... I don't live in like the hootie duty town here, part of town. There is none in Baltimore, really. <laughs> and it's $1,500 for 632 square feet. Wow. Yeah. There's like, it's just crazy. And and so for the issues that we're talking about, 
There's not any even entry level housing, and then you um, well, you no, have because the banks you, 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 it up. even if you had a full time job, uh, if you're making, I'm not sure what what uh, minimum wage or living wage in in the U.S. is, but yeah, you, you definitely working full time could still end up being a resident in the park. So we have to kind of dispel of some of those narratives that lazy, yes, um, substance Addict. misuse, yeah, but maybe some of that's true. Yeah, criminal, um, hiding from the law, not wanting to be on the grid, all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. so we've got to, uh, I want to do a podcast that you and I have talked about it before, but for everybody listening, I think I want to let you know when we do, un- we're going to do a podcast in a few weeks with the gentleman who actually owned property and was unhoused at the time. Yeah. It's a weird little situation. You could call it an outlier, but I think it just, I think access to adequate shelter, mm-hmm. if that's the topic, then this group in this park is part of that, but it's a much bigger group being affected by it. It's new arrivals from other countries. My kids, unless they can get a mortgage, they can't afford to move out of the house because they are not making enough money to afford $200, $250 a square foot for an apartment. And the last thing that's really interesting, recognizing, like the private sector always does, a business opportunity. Here comes the founder of WeWork back in with a huge upfront valuation of, I forget how much he got this at its height. We work was valued at 47 billion. It, it crashed to the basement, but now he's launching this new company called flow and they've gotten some initial investments that put it at like a, I forget, I can't even see. I'm like on the other page here looking for it. It's about a billion, some dollar valuation or close wow. to it anyways, or it will be, but here's the premise. A lot of places that you rent in the United States are crappy. So <laughs> th- this is not the the version that was used in the uh, New York Times. But basically, it's you, you know the Ritz-Carlton doesn't actually own property, right? They are property managers, the same as, I believe, the Four Seasons in Canada. And so some rich Uber person mm-hmm. will, Uber rich person, will not a rich person from Uber, although I'm, that could happen too. They'll build this big building. <laughs> And then they will bring in the Four Seasons to run and manage the building and bring the brand to it and have an exceptional. And then they hold on to the property and they make a portion of the profit, yada, yada, yada. But it's a kind of a genius business idea. And what he's doing is he's applying this to crappy apartments, basically, mm. because with so many people working from home, they're not, these apartments are stale, life sucking, not fiber optic wired type of property. So I think he's got to deal with a few thousand units in uh, Miami right now, and they're going to rehab them and they're for the people who are staying home and working. So there's, I mean, in terms of housing, there's so many different ways you could look at this, but will that in and of itself, more people working from home also clog up home ownership opportunities? I don't know. It's just a lot of converging pieces coming together, but this constant piece of people not having a place to go Mm-hmm. when they're not middle class is an enduring issue that I, I feels like our societies are unwilling to deal with or face in North America. Yeah. And I, it, sometimes I think an oversimplification of it being just about the shelter, but not everything that the shelter represents. And so for, yeah, for me, when I think about what's the value that I have in coming home, all of my stuff is safe when I lock the door. Yeah, generally. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't have to worry about that. Uh, I'm dry, I'm warm, I can rest. Then I can get up and go the next day. If yep. those 
even if we reduced it to those elements, it's, it's, and it's fairly quiet. But if I could create the conditions that those are the things that enable me to probably be able to go in some ways to go to work the next day, I have a, a good night's sleep. I don't worry about leaving because I know it's going to be there and my stuff's yep. going to be there. So I don't yep. have to worry about that. I could set yep. the alarm. I can. So, and you can arrange things in a bit of like, yes, the space is also sanctuary. It's energy is where you can come and kind of, which is what flow is all about and why I brought that up. There's a sense mm -hmm. of where you live is critical to a lot more than just having a place to sleeping and keeping your things, which is definitely a part of it. But now right. it's like your job, your life, your industry and flow and this billion dollar investment. It wasn't a billion dollars is, is definitely looking at that. So it just to underscore the points that you're making, it's so much more than just a place to sleep at night and not be in the rain or the weather. Well, yeah, but it, because if you only solve for that and that can be sort of a, an interim measure for a little while, yeah. Of course, getting out of the elements is important. Yeah. Um, so maybe you sleep in a in a bus shelter or a, a covering, or maybe you sleep in in your car if you are lucky enough to have a car. Yeah. Uh, get out of the elements that way. But long term, that's only out of the elements. I wonder about the response. So in the last year, I joined the board of a of a local organization uh, working at uh, that's sort of one of the places I'm volunteering now, where they're working toward a sort of layered strategy in, in addressing um, unhoused issues and, and, and the situation in, in Halifax. And we should say for everybody who maybe is unfamiliar with the term unhoused, it is um, a, probably a, a better term than homeless. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's some thinking behind that, but just, I just wanted to explain that. Um, you've said that term. Yeah, no, thank you. No, I, I think that's, I think that's important because uh, we can use words and, um, and then some folks will get lost in, in the conversation. So I think, so we're working with these unhoused individuals and trying to uh, meet them where they're at, what they need in the, in a very various levels of some need individual apartments, some need more community living yeah. uh, because they need in-house supports. And anyway, so it's, it's kind of a, a really cool organization. Recently, we had uh, an interesting meeting at the board level, which was fascinating to me because we were talking about the response. And one of the folks said, without sharing too much that happened confidentially, I do think it's important there, but one person was asking, there was a, a statement that was issued on behalf of a number of organizations that was against the police and the use of the police in removing people from the park. And so a number of organizations got together and they made some very strong statements about how inappropriate it was to use police, that this that folks were uh, a social issue was being treated like it was criminal and it was inappropriate and so on and so forth. One of the board members asked, what do we believe? Like as a group, who are we? Like I thought it was a really important question to be asking at a board meeting to say, are we as a group sort of supportive of that? Or are we in this position to be anti-police involvement at these parks? And the response back, and I won't get too far into it, but it was, well, you have to recognize we are a service providing agency and there's advocacy groups. And one of the questions, and, and this mm. was a statement by a coalition of both. And I started thinking about the work that you do when people are looking for and employee groups and, and um, corporations are looking to get involved in their community. How do you help them figure out, do they want to do service provider type work or do they want to do advocacy type work or is there space to do both yeah can you have one without the other 
Can we have advocacy without service? Yeah. Or service without advocacy? I think it's difficult to have service without advocacy because if you're doing it in a way that's transformative and you're being shaped by the experience, I, it would be almost impossible to not advocate for your friends, for your group, for people who are being affected because now it's about you too. Like it's your identity wrapped up in it. So if you're serving in a transformative way, I think it would be very difficult. If you're serving in sort of a transactional way, I don't consider the mind of the other. I just put out the food. I deliver it. I don't, this is just a job. Definitely. I can just see. Yeah. But even then that's a, that's a stretch. On the other hand, advocacy with a service definitely could see that, but it's really weird to have somebody in advocacy who hasn't had firsthand experience with it. So even then they're kind of bringing that life experience back into that advocacy. So that would be difficult too. I, I, I don't know practically how it would happen inside of a person, but as an organization, I can definitely see them curtailing one or the other. And, and that plays out really interesting in the private sector. We can get that in a second. I think one feels safer, right? Like one definitely is like, if I'm doing service providing, if we use the people's park as an example, and yeah. I'm at work and I'm saying to folks, I could probably get people together to say, Hey, we're going to do a, a, a sweater drive and hats and mittens. It's getting cold there. Um, let's all collect this and let's go down uh, with a bunch of toiletries and deodorant and all of that stuff. We're going to deliver that. It's going to make us feel good. And we're going to, okay, so I could organize my team around that. I think I could get good buy-in. We would feel good about what we were doing. We would go down, we'd do a thing. And we might even talk about it later and why that mattered to us and consist with our values, all that good stuff. That feels like in some way, though, providing a service, it would be a different invite to say, hey, folks, I hear the police are going to go in and, and raid the park this tomorrow morning. We ride at dawn. Uh, who's <laughs> who's, I, I, who's with I, me? I want to be there. I want to be a part of that group. We ride at dawn. That's right? awesome. Uh, yeah. Probably harder to do that. I could probably do that with my some relationships. Yeah, you're but close. I, I don't know that I could do that uh, in an employee world or like with my work. Mates. Okay, so switching away from the nonprofit organization designed specifically to either serve the group or to advocate for the group. If we move over to the private sector, and I'm going to go back to about 2010 when we started getting into this kind of work for reals, and social media was popping. 2008, Twitter was making the stage. I was trying to figure out how do we get to 5,000 followers. I was furiously going after it. And all of a sudden, employees had a platform to talk about all the bad things that were happening in the company in a way where you could cultivate an audience that would respond to it. You curated a group of individuals who then would tell some other folks and, and explode. And so around the middle part of the last decade, you saw a ton of HR conferences about how do we manage employee voice and advocacy? And what's the other word for advocacy that's a bit more aggressive? Um, I Activism. Activism. So this is a word that got thrown around a lot. Your employees are activists. Many of them will be activists. And if you do not have the proper systems in place, everybody will know about your business and the company. It's not, you can't send internal memos and shut it down like that anymore. That, that era is over. And then this sort of folded into corporate social responsibility where companies were looking at the community and saying, how can we govern ourselves properly? How can we support a community properly? And then how can we enable our employees to get active too. And it was very forward thinking. It was messy. Nobody quite knew what was the right thing to do or where to do it or what credit you could take for what was getting done. I admit all of that, right? 
But during this time period, 2010, the term ESG, a little bit before this, but definitely in the last decade as well, began to ascend environment, social, and governance. That's the term ESG. And this is a framework that a lot of companies are imposing on themselves before uh, regulations and uh, policies, com legislation comes into place. So is this like a, is this like a social conscience kind of thing? Kind of, yeah. Kind of like that. Like we want, we're looking at the environment. Right. What's our position in the environment as a company? So Exxon Mobil. Okay. Right. Tesla. Right. Let's look at those. Yeah. Exxon Mobil is extracting a product and selling a product that creates carbon. Mm -hmm. Directly degrading the environment. However, it's necessary because we don't have alternatives, functional alternatives. Tesla, on the other hand, functional alternative really, I would say a woke style company, even if you've got a real odd person at the helm. Yeah. So you have these two companies. And when you look at environment, you're looking at what is their position in the environment? How are they interacting with social? What's their contribution? And how are they governing? Is there transparency in the governance? What does that look like? And, and since this is self-imposed, there's not a lot of standards. So there's companies like Moody's and Standard & Poor and some others that do take all the data and sort of look at it and then provide it to a, a group of individuals who are very curious about this because it directs their investment. And so ESG has become a primary tool for investors, both mm -hmm. of funds or individual investors, to understand one thing about the company. And this is, it's moved from a broad, here's our position against these things and, here, and here's what we're doing, to in terms of environment, social, and governance, and all of that, what that entails, are you at risk of being sued? <laughs> okay. Did you lose a chance to make some cash? Right? right? Okay. So McDonald's, uh, a couple of years ago, increased their methane output by 7%. A massive amount of methane. If you look at their internal supply chain, their carbon footprint went up enormously. It affected all of us. It's considered an externality, right? It's They mm -hmm. produce it, and we all have to deal with the cost. We it's just like have pollution. to roll with it. Yeah. Right. Yep. Not their problem, right? So ESG says, it really, isn't it your problem or is it an opportunity? And so the ratings agency looked and said, well, nobody can sue you. You didn't break any laws. So that's good. And secondly, you don't have a carbon capture opportunity here. So you didn't miss an opportunity to make money. So we're giving you full marks, even though this happened. And so Elon Musk has recently called ESG uh, the tool of Satan because... <laughs> ExxonMobil, top 10. Tesla, not on the top 10. Not even, not close. They lost. And there's some rationale behind that, yada, yada, yada. And in terms of the way they score, it all makes sense. Problem is ESG is just about a backwards looking, are we going to make or lose money for the next quarter based on what we did backwards? It is not looking to the future. So all of this to say, and this is where I'm going with this, and I apologize to everybody who's totally not into this stuff and maybe hung up. Uh, let me check in with you. Does that make sense? Because yeah, the implication I mean, is uh, awful. I think, no, no, I think what you're, what you're talking about in terms of what you just said is really, really actually helpful to pivot between the forward focus and backward focused. And so if it's always looking back, you're just trying to attend to what you've done, but not, not, not considering the conditions of the world that you're, you're, you're working in. It's not going for it. ESG care. does not care about the conditions of people, the world, right. anything. It just, Liability that money-making entity. Yeah. Is it affected by all of this woke blah, blah, blah going around it? Like stay your lane. Don't get in trouble. That's all ESG is trying to do. 
So here's the horrible implication. Okay. These CSR teams, every big company has a corporate social responsibility team okay. or a corporate responsibility team or community citizenship team. They are all being renamed mm -hmm. ESG, okay. which means they get an entirely new job of filling out reports to show investors they're staying in their lane. So when one person now who rolls up the legal, because it's a risk management issue, right. community investment is a risk management project now, was told, I get what we're doing in community. I get our employees like it. Only a couple thousand employees. Let's keep doing the fun stuff, but slow the roll on anything that might have risk. Like we don't need to be adventurous, which means any company out there that was thinking we could be advocates we will, because this came up in social media back, you know, 15 mm -hmm. years ago. Your employees are going to be advocates for things. They're going to be agitators. They're going to be, what was the other word that we just came up with? Activists. Activists, yeah. yeah. We need to get behind that too. What? Screech, you know, again, yeah. let's get the screechy brake sound in here, but <laughs> hit the brakes. We've decided not to go that direction. We're going to pull back. We're going to mitigate our risks and we're going to shut down activism and advocacy because it damages their position in front of our investors. And at the same time, to your point, they haven't broken a law. So you can stay on the right side of the, the legislation. You're doing the bare minimum to your, to your point of what you have to do, or in yep. some ways, it sounds yep. like it. Bare um, minimum for an investment perspective. Yeah. Like we're, investment we're, they're abandoning right. all pretense of catering to anybody, which I, Jake, you don't, it's you, self -serving. you're not getting it. it. BlackRock yeah. just came out and said exactly the opposite and is doubling, get your ESG reports in. We're for stakeholders, not shareholders, but ESG only cares about shareholders. It only cares about stakeholders if they're going to cause a problem. So ESG is like a buffer to save us from having to deal with those freaking activists. So here's my problem. We're going to be working with a large international company several hundred thousand employees around the world, a brand name that everybody would know, and they want to give their employees voice to stand up, be fully resourced, to speak out on things that they think need to be spoken out about. But I don't think they've talked to the ESG department yet. Right. So I, I wonder, would, you know, using that as an example, what would that company's response be to the park, to, to unhoused folks, to, or would they care? Yeah. Okay. So this company, if they're, if we're in the future where we work with them and we give mm -hmm. them tools and resources, their employees are going to actually go through a bit of a process. I envision where they're invited to become advocates for things in their communities where they live and work that matter to them related to social environment, whatever it may be. And they would be fully resourced to step in and either serve like help mm -hmm. or maybe do that and say things on their social media. They're not going to be holding press releases for the company or anything like, or a press conference for the company or anything like that. But this person is expecting her employees to stand up and speak their mind. Hmm. But there is a huge push in the private sector to shut that stuff down. But it's what's, it's, it's absolutely what's needed. I think. Well, I mean, this more is, individuals this... educated and with a microphone. Well, this is interesting, right? Because this is exactly where we were going at our recent board meeting dozen folks saying, yep. okay, a statement was made. Is that from all of us? Did we yeah. believe that? Like, if mm -hmm. are we speaking as one group or are we okay with different members of our team and our staff and the groups that are here 
representing the organization in this way. And I'm a board member. Do, do I have to believe that? So it's an interesting conversation. I, I would love to see it played out to scale like you're talking with 100,000 people. And again, you know, manu- they're manufacturing, they're retail, they interact with mm. celebrities. They do advocacy already, but they want to give it to individuals to mm. do. And I'm just wondering, you know, what would happen if they did that? That would be interesting because the whole thing about legislation, and so it's the law, the breaking the law, mm-hmm. is so manufactured because why didn't we just create a law that you can't be homeless? That Halifax will not allow any of its citizens, housed or unhoused, to not have access to proper shelter. That's the law. And we're going to keep mm-hmm. that law instead. Just because there's a law seems like an artificial, made-up, pretend reason for why you're doing what you're doing when you're not actually solving a problem. You're just moving it out of sight so the rest of us don't have to see it. It's not making us safer or helping. It's not making us safer. It absolutely doesn't make us safer. But it would be an interesting position statement to say, this is what we're working toward. We're working toward no unhoused folks. Yeah. That either there's a range of service providers that are well-funded and, and that volunteers, that there's sort of a an energy around volunteering in the city that's different than anywhere else. We're going to invest in volunteers and to invest uh, in people building a community of care and support where they can see each other, see the humanity in each other. Yep. Well, if we started doing that, the solutions aren't that far. It no. It doesn't become a resource piece then. Yes, I agree. You got to care. You gotta yes. care about the issue and the you people. gotta care about the the people who are being affected by the. They're right. not just a data point. So yes. when we were in Alaska, I went to Alaska during COVID because I couldn't go anywhere else. Um, and but uh, but for any listeners in Alaska, it's beautiful. It is. Oh, it was okay. it was outstanding. We rented an RV. It was so exciting. That's why I'm bringing it up. We rented an RV. Okay. It's absolutely beautiful. Driving like, around. We couldn't go anywhere yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like our two Alaskan listeners. Sorry. Sorry, folks. <laughs> Driving around. And they and we were thinking, well, we have to find parks, places to park. And then somebody said, you can camp anywhere. As long as it doesn't say no camping. Mm. Really? No, anywhere? It, 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 tells you, it tells you, just not here. Yeah. It, there's a little That's sign. It's like, this is my house, no camping. Oh, okay. But you can camp. <laughs> you can stop anywhere and just set up shop and when people come by Mm. they come to check and make sure you're okay that is totally different than say other areas i don't know what the camping rules are in nova scotia but let's pretend that the only place you can camp is in a campground Mm. or in an appropriately regulated area and let's say there's some good rules for that because they have bathroom stalls and other things now in alaska they're like you can go to the bathroom anywhere just dig a hole and cover it but in Nova Scotia, let's say, well, we want that better infrastructure. So now a person's driving along and they want to camp somewhere. The police come by. They don't check if you're safe. They like are going to evict you or take you to jail or make sure you're in an appropriate place, but you can't pay the fee. So it's just right. really interesting. The role of the police in both places, their identity of safety or whatever, but the, the preconditions are just, can we give people information so that they can look after themselves and have agency and do it in a way that's safe for them and for us? Or do we say, here are the places, here are the rules, here are the only things that you can do, and thereby limiting access to the very safe places for them and for us that we want them to go because we've never really considered who they are and the issues they're facing. And I want to go back to something you said earlier. The reason shelters are not a solution is because 
you can't stay in them all day long. Not most of them. Right. Right. You get up and you're out. Outside, you hope that your yeah. stuff is not being rifled through. You don't have a place to relax. It's raining. Not my problem. Go find a place, right? Shelters are not a home. Shelters keep you out of the weather overnight so you don't die. But beyond that, and get some food and some, and you can check in with someone. And they're very important. But they are not a solution by any sense. And so all the things you were talking about, sanctuary, a place to go and relax and get yourself together and receive mail and put your stuff that is not accessible. And so that is part of the human experience that we need to be considering as well, is that it's just not sticking them under a tarp somewhere. That's not what's going on at the park. The park is about, this is my place. I can organize my stuff my way. Nobody kicks me out. You know what? It's like, there's more going on here than I think most of us consider. Yeah. There's, there's the everyday things. I, to your point, one thing I've often noticed about these places that kick people out and there's probably practical reasons this is the time Ask we clean the leave. building well, this is the time we yeah we you know we don't have staff who can be here exactly. during the day because they're here at night so we need to mm -hmm. whatever but i've noticed that people don't go very far often because you have to be back in line so the doors close at 8 a.m after breakfast everyone's out and they go sit on the wall directly across the street and they wait for the door to open Again, um, or they'll sit just outside and then that's where community and they'll sit on that same wall all day long and talk to each other and have community outside. And, and what I noticed about that in, in the park as I would drive by in the morning on my way to work is that people were sitting out, they're having coffee around the fire, they're standing cooking together. I don't think it would be easy to live in the park. I couldn't do it. I don't think I could. I don't think I would survive well there, but there were moments where people were uh, doing things that felt like they weren't struggling in that moment. Like there were some real human things, people laughing, having a coffee together, sitting in folding chairs around the fire in the morning. And, and that part of the day that I got to witness on, as I drive by yeah. Yeah. seemed to be a human moment. Yeah. It's hard to get out of your head. Jake, that, the, the worst thing about institutionalizing poverty in the way we have and outsourcing it to the street, which is what the middle class mm -hmm, has mm -hmm. done. The objective there, I'm going to be really crass and I apologize to everybody in this space. I'm not talking about your organization, your heart, your intention, your lived experience, your perspective. I'm talking about the system that our ancestors put in place. It is so that we do not have to be confronted with it live under the overpass, live where I can't see you, you're probably not going to get bothered. There's 45,000 people in Los Angeles alone who are living on underpasses and whatnot. And I've always thought early on in this work, somebody told me, uh, gave me a quote. I don't know who said it, but they said, that the most difficult thing about being poor is how much time it takes. Like it, you're so busy being poor. Like you said, because I have to, if I want to get back into the shelter, that's my day. I'm yeah. working all day, sitting, waiting. Why? Because that's a system some middle class person came up with based on their lived experience that made a lot of sense. And there probably logistically is a lot of sense, but it's not the only way to do it. It's not the only way to see it. And I, I resonate a lot with Father Boyle's quote. Father Boyle, he is a, a priest in Los Angeles. He uh, works with uh, folks who are the outgroup, kids from gangs and that kind of thing. He does a ton of great work. You should look him up. But here is his quote. Here's what we seek, a compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. Yep. 
And I think when we drive by that park and we see people cobbling together some semblance of humanity and dignity, it should not be the judgment of how they're doing it. You're not following our rules for our organizations in our systems that make sense for us. You're doing it your way. There's an awesomeness to being able to pull yourself together with so little left. No bank account. Maybe you can't read. The intersectionality facing these men and women and youth is phenomenal. Uh, these tents are a testament to human resilience, in my mind. These, these homes, these places, because with nothing left, they're figuring out to stay alive and keep their humanity. Yeah. This, this episode that we've been talking through today is a bit of a, a teaser because I'm really looking forward to us chatting with someone who, who has actually direct lived experience. We've yeah. kind of talked around it and yeah. we know that that's coming. And so I'm really looking forward to this, but uh, this has been, uh, been a good chat. Next time uh, when we pick it up and we're going to have him on the interview and it's going to be, we're going to look at Portland, Oregon, where, where there's a right. ton of homeless folks living right down in the city. What have they done? Have they approached it? What was his experience as part of it? And it, it'll be a pretty mind blowing uh, episode, I think. But even then, to get into more of the stories of individuals, because you and I know so many people who are unhoused, even here in Baltimore and currently in Halifax, but mm -hmm. from way back in the day, I don't know if I would have made it like that. Some of the folks that we know are some of our friends who live on the street, Jake, just their oh, ability never. to persevere, to push through. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, same. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that, chatting that through. I can't wait for the next part of our conversation. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Talk soon. Okay, make sure. This has been a Podstarter production. production.